Hey team, you're about to experience my interview with Brett Sinclair. Brett is a 13 year plus veteran of the B2B e-commerce space. He's a B2B e-commerce consultant, and he is also the executive director of the B2B e-commerce association, and he's based out of Melbourne, Australia. This guy knows a ton about B2B e-commerce. We had a fantastic interview and I learned a ton. Welcome to B2B Commerce Corner. Commerce Corner is a sub-series of the e-commerce edge podcast discussing all things B2B commerce through the lens of agencies, consultants, merchants, and more. Enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. I have a guest that I have been working long and hard to get onto this show. I've been begging and pleading and sending emails and sending p- carrier pigeons across to Mr. Brent Sinclair. Brett Sinclair, thank you so much for coming onto the pod. Welcome, mate. Yeah, thanks, Jason. Awesome to be here. I know I've moved the scheduling around a few times, but we finally made it. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to having a chat today. And you've got a very good excuse. You've just had a, a, a new baby. Yes. I thought one was hard, but adding a second in the mix is really brought a whole new dynamic. So back to sleepless nights and brain fog. So hopefully today makes some sort of sense. And we'll, but if it doesn't, we might have to do some serious editing, but let's see what happens. I was talking about before we went on air, we need to publish your skincare regime because I was expecting you to turn up all sunken faced and droopy faced and tired. And you don't even have any freaking eye bags, man. I don't know what you're doing, but keep doing it. Yeah, it's all part of the sort of that bald look. You shine the head and the face and it all comes out glowing the secret of mine so we'll have to put it in there in the podcast notes uh, i love it i'll point them to your website look man we, we, look we've known each other for a few years now obviously you're based down in in sydney and you know your head you're kind of like a bit of a famous star in the b2b world you have been for the last few years head of the b2b org and b2b e-commerce association and you have become a luminary in your own right in the B2B space as a bit of a touchstone for encouraging better B2B e-commerce execution, not just in ANZ, but globally. And how did, you know, as I look back across your career, you have been, you've worked in the digital space, you've worked in the agency space, you've worked in B2B for many years. So it makes total sense that you would want to do this. Man, being the head of an industry association seems like a hell of a lot of work, but I'm hoping it's equally rewarding. So how did you come to be into this space, man? Yeah, it's been a pretty awesome journey, actually. And we've really only been plugging away at this association and bringing our sort of industry together for a couple of years now. And it's been a, the fluctuates. So you talk about how much work it is, and it's been a lot of work to get it to this point and to build the momentum that we have as a bit of a community now. But the the concept and the ideas came about Really, it was actually very about six or seven years ago, nearly, that I was thinking about launching this association. And it actually started out when I was running a small e-commerce agency that was focused on helping manufacturers and distributors with e-commerce channels, setting up direct-to-consumer sites and B2B portals at the time. And I was pretty green when I started that business. And when I first got into it, I thought I was really just building a website for these businesses but I really didn't understand that what I was really doing at the time was change management and helping them really understand digital and e-commerce and what it meant in their context. And I was always, I've always got quite frustrated because I was always having to re-educate 
my customers and everyone that I was dealing with from senior executive way down to coordinator, operational level person trying to explain why we're doing something. And I was thinking, wow, this is like really hard. And I have a lot of empathy for systems integrators and agencies and tech companies and everyone playing in the space because they're trying really hard to help their customers on their digital journey in, in this category. And it's when, when digital is not in your core DNA as a manufacturer or a distributor, it's quite difficult to pick up these concepts and these different buzzwords and those types of things. So I was actually thinking, wouldn't it be good if there was like a training course or some sort of educational platform for B2B e-commerce? I was thinking, I was actually thinking at the time, though, this is going to be, I'd rather do that than try and build platforms for people because it's just, it seems so much easier and it's so much more scalable. Yeah. And I can just work on my own. I'll just talk to people and help them understand the, the basics. And then I was looking around and down here where I live in Australia, there'd been some really successful retail groups and conference conferences that had been built as there had been globally in the retail space, a lot of really successful and quite large sort of forums now and communities based on in the retail conversation. And I was meeting more and more people in the B2B space that were going to a lot of these events that were always saying that, oh, I enjoyed it. It's very retail focused. You know, what we do is quite different. We've got complex pricing. We've got a whole different business model compared to retail. Yes, we're interested in D2C, but not really our thing. And then so I had a bit of an epiphany one day and I was actually working in, at the time I was also working at Adobe in the Magento business and I could see as well how much the systems integration world was also that we're in retail really trying to pivot as well into the B2B space. And I had a bit of an epiphany one day that actually what we need to do is start an association and start to bring this community together. It had been going for a long time, B2B commerce. It's not news, obviously a massive amount of chatter about it now and everyone's talking about it, wanting to expand and grow in that area, but has been going for some time now. It just hadn't been organized in any meaningful way. So I set out on a bit of a mission. It was, I guess, the blessing of lockdown sort of helped, had a bit of spare time pre-kids to start to bring this community together, launched a website, started to have a lot of conversations with different people and different brands and start to bring everyone into a space where we can start to have a conversation and bring, try and bring all the minds together and people that are active like yourself, Jason, that are talking about the challenges that B2B companies face. And, and since then, you can just really see it snowballing, all the content that people like yourself and Arno and Michael, Vax and everyone that's putting up now about B2B, it's really snowballing. And so, yeah, now I'm really... There's a lot I can cover off, but it's been a pretty amazing sort of experience just meeting so many different people. And that's probably one thing I'll say about getting involved in these sort of community ideas and networks is just if you really lean into it. It's pretty incredible how many people that you can meet from that and how many opportunities that you can build for yourself and for your brand. I imagine, you know, what all the effort you do in creating content is really just opening so many doors to meeting people, right? And that really is at the end of the day, the secret to any sort of success in business. I always say it takes a village, right? And I think e-commerce is a small, relatively small niche of that bigger umbrella of IT. Broadly speaking, it's digital and e-com have come into their own over the last decade or so, but they really are. Most people that are outside of our industry almost consider it a sub-niche of IT. And then when you sector that down even further into B2B e-commerce, it really is a very small, very tight-knit community because 
we have to work together. We have to support each other. No person is an island. That's the reality. And so we, we see DC, DC 360 doing certain things. We see the guys over at Trellis doing certain things from a content perspective. As you said, we see Michael Vax. We see there, there definitely have been some vocal parties in our space for some time. But what I'm seeing emerge is more focused organization like what you guys are doing, trying to bring some cohesion to all these you know, the rats and mice, we have that saying in A and Z, rats and mice, right? Rats and mice yeah. running around doing all sorts of things and going down all sorts of different rabbit holes. And we all have our own unique specializations. But I think you, you hit the nail on the head for a long time, B2B e-commerce in particular lacked focal point. It lacked cohesion. It lacked connectivity. It lacked the ability to collaborate easily. And I think that COVID accelerated that collaborative effort. Because we all realized, shit, if we're going to get through this together and we're going to be able to jointly capitalize on this rapidly exploding opportunity, we're going to have, the only way we're going to be, do, be able to do this is to do it together. We see now, I'm even seeing more new B2B conferences, physical conferences coming into play now with even WBR, Worldwide Business Research, them doing two B2B dedicated conferences every year. They're one of the biggest conference organizers in the entire world. And they're doing two yeah. dedicated B2B conferences, one on each coast now every year. And I've just seen, I've seen really the crystallization of B2B happen at an accelerated rate since COVID. That's been my observation. W would you say you've seen similar things happen? Yeah, absolutely. That's the, that was definitely the silver lining for our industry during that time as it forced a lot of the executive to stop and look at the e-commerce strategy and pro probably take way more time than what they usually would have probably to understand it, right? Because it came so mission critical and then maybe it was further down the, the digital transformation roadmap and they've brought it forward. Maybe they were in that bucket where, you know, oh, we're gonna do our ER, update our ERP first and then we'll, we'll do that e-commerce bit later and maybe brought that forward. But yeah, the bringing, bringing that, to, that community together, it's, it's critical for the whole industry to succeed and to grow and both from and I'm just saying that from a technology perspective or a systems integration perspective, because everyone wants to grow their consulting businesses. It's more the benefit really is coming from the on the client side or the practitioner side, because you've got so many people now that are having to come into this space and are coming into this space. And you just sometimes you don't know what you don't know. And it's simply it's it's so new. There's just people out there now that are landing in these roles that don't have ne have never done it before. And so they're looking for knowledge. They want to meet other people that have have the experience and have done it before, and they want to make sure that they're connecting with the right people. Because I always, one of the things I always used to think when I would walk into a conference trade show or something in e-commerce, whether it was retail or any kind of digital trade show, I try to always put myself in the shoes of someone that has no idea or has very limited digital maturity in the category and what you must be thinking when you walk into a place like this, you're meeting all these people who are telling you a million different things, but you can see why people can lose their way so quickly um, because it's just so many, it's, it's like the wild west. So one of the things I wanted to achieve with the B2B Commerce Association was at a minimum, bring the right people into the space that can actually help a B2B company with their e-commerce or digital transformation. I have people that are talking about that are legitimate professionals in this space that are here to provide advice and then and but also get more content and stories and leadership from the people that are doing that are leading the way on the practitioner side because there are a lot of people out there doing great things they're just they're just not they haven't been surfaced yet so we're trying 
more and more to find people that are doing something in the B2B commerce category and telling their story. That's why these sort of your podcasts and the trellis guys and others that are out there creating content. It's awesome because we get to hear about what other brands are doing and what people are doing. I think that's going to really help snowball and galvanize the community as well as we continue to grow. I think you, you speak to a very crucial point there, which is that from my sense, B2B e-commerce is about 10 years, maybe eight to 10 years behind where retail e-commerce, B2C, D2C e-commerce is. And B2C, D2C is very mature. You know, you there's lots of capability out there. There's lots of knowledge out there. There's lots of technology out there that makes it easier to succeed in the B2C, D2C space. It's very mature tech from personalization to search merch to anything you name it. There's a lot of tech out there that is acts as an enabler for very cutting edge B2C, D2C e-commerce experiences. But I think, A, because it was on the back burner for so long for most B2B businesses, and there was lots of legacy industries operating B2B businesses. And because the tech is so far behind, it's so delayed in, in creating technology that's dedicated to the B2B space and really B2B appropriate, I think we're playing catch up. We're playing a massive game of catch up. And even if we look across the content space, there's probably 20 20 major podcasts out there that are hyper successful that target the B2C, D2C e-commerce space. But there's only two or three max out there that are creating content on a very regular basis that I consider of a very high caliber that's dedicated to B2B. And so I, that's, that's really evidence of the emergence of B2B. And I think that people are getting more vocal. And I think it's so important to have an industry representative that understands the space. You're not a Johnny come lately, but you've been doing this for a really long time. It's not like you just decided, oh, hey, there's this content opportunity out in the B2B space. So let's jump on the bandwagon. You were like, no, I recognized this deficiency or this immaturity in the space a long time ago. And I decided a long time ago to do something about this. But I guess you were ahead of the curve. And now the rest of the market's finally starting to catch up and switch on to what you have been trying to bring to the surface for a really long time. Yeah, yeah. I think it's been sitting there waiting to really explode this category, right? And you know, that's a really exciting thing, I think, for people that are working in, the, working in the space. That's why I'm really encouraging people to really come forward now and tell your story because, you know, this. if you're working in B2B e-commerce, you're becoming very valuable to your organization. I think a lot of people don't realize how valuable they are to their organizations at the moment. And then, and probably to be fair, maybe their bosses don't really understand either. You could, you know, because you can come across some pretty big companies sometimes and there might only be a couple of people that are running the entire e-commerce division. So there's more and more opportunities that are going to be emerging for people that are working in this category as we continue to this trajectory that we're on. And part of the challenge is when you mentioned, you know, not Johnny come lately with the content and why hasn't, I was probably thinking at the time when I set, look, looking at setting up the association, this concept and like, why hadn't anyone done it yet? Because there's been retail conversations and it all comes down to the complexity of the conversation. It is a highly complex conversation and there's lot of challenges as well even from people coming into the category there's just so much to know you can't really take necessarily just because you've, you're a retail consumer and you're in those experiences and think that you can map all this out you might have done a retail site you've got a b2b site with so much more complexity and there's so much and it comes back to what i said originally you're really a change agent as well 
as not having on the, yes, you're going to need the technical knowledge. You're going to need some marketing now, but you really need to be a change agent. You really need to know how to influence within your own organization, sell the benefits, manage successful change program. So there's just a lot of little nuances and little niches. And we'll see that emerge more and more as we continue to grow. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts, Jason. You've been doing in this industry for a while because the retail, you've got your little, and now you've got your niche roles within that. Whereas in B2B space, you still see there's a lot of job advertisements that I'll see regularly where you're still looking for the unicorn that's going to do everything right. But these, there's going to be more and more specific roles that emerge within these teams. And a lot of B2B companies still, still fit, finding their way through it on how to structure their e-commerce businesses. And that was the same journey that retail went on. You can talk to a lot of retailers and they'll tell you that they had two or three goes at this e-commerce thing before they got it. And that's a similar journey to what's happening in the B2B space. Yeah, interested to hear what you think around building teams and what you're seeing. Yeah, look, I think I, I watched the evolution like you did in retail go through where does e-commerce even sit in a business? Should it sit under IT? Should it sit under marketing? Should it be its own division within the business? Should we have a, a head of digital with a, a CDO, a HOD, and then maybe an e-com manager sitting underneath that? Should an e-commerce e manager answer directly to the CEO? And that's what we saw a lot emerge over the last few years. I think that digital has, for a long time, you almost had to have a CDO or a head of digital or somebody that was really a massive advocate for digital inside the business to, to get any traction inside the business. You had to have a seat at the executive table to really get traction. And I think now it's a foregone conclusion in most retail businesses that digital is going to be a significant revenue driver for the business. Most businesses, it's going to go range from anywhere from 20 to 40% of revenue is going to come from digital channels or up to 60% if we look at digitally assisted sales that are actually processed physically. And so whether that be click and collect, whether that be ship from store, whatever it might be. And so I think there has been an evolution of maturity in the retail sector around how do we structure both our process design, but also our org design to make sure that digital continues to get the pride of place, both in terms of mindshare, investment, cross-functional capabilities and KPIs to where teams are working together cross-functionally to make sure that we're all pulling the le levers together and pulling in the same direction and we're not fighting each other. And I think that what we've seen is we've seen an element of specialization in digital retail as well, whereby you have digital specialists that maybe know a little bit more about the physical retail side. You have digital specialists that maybe have only ever worked in e-commerce pure plays, digital pure plays. So that's where their real, that's where their deep knowledge lies. You have omni-channel specialists, which have expertise in tying all this stuff together. You have technical and operational specialists like me, which don't come from a really marketing focused background. So we've got, we've now got good areas of specialization, I think, in digital teams, in retail. I think now we're going to have to go through that same evolution over time within B2B. So nowadays, what I'm seeing is because there's such a dearth of capability and knowledge in the B2B space, oftentimes these B2B businesses that maybe are doing e-commerce for the very first time, they're, they're, they're being forced to pull capabilities and skills from those retail e-commerce specialists. And they're bringing them in and they're saying, okay, you've got all this e-commerce knowledge and capability, but now we need to school you up on all the B2B stuff. Or I've seen it go the other way, which is, hey, we've got somebody in, internal to the business that really knows their shit when it comes to B2B, but maybe they're not that clued up from the digital perspective. And so we're going we're gonna to skill them up and we're going to train them up. We're going to get some knowledge transfer maybe from an agency or a consultancy or whatever it might be. And we're going we're gonna to add digital capabilities to their skill set because they've already got all the B2B knowledge. Now we need to be able to translate all of that into digital equivalents. And so I'm seeing it go both directions, but I agree with you. 
I think over the next, say, five to 10 years, there's going to be elements of specialization within those capability sets within B2B businesses, just the same evolution as we saw in digital retail. Yeah. Which one would you choose? Would you rather be upskilling a someone within the business that knows the processes and the business model back to front? Or would you rather take a e-commerce expert and skill them up on and train them up around the business model? And how Man, that's, that's such a good question. I don't really have a preference. I think in some instances, the building teams from within with a selective partners that are external partners that you bring in, whether because even in, in digital retail, you usually need, especially if you're, let's say you're doing $15 million in GMV or more a year, you'll have a dev agency partner, you'll have marketing partners. You usually, no matter what your capability is internally, you'll need some external partners anyway. And what I've found in consulting to a lot of B2B businesses, there's a lot of latent knowledge inside the business that maybe they haven't even talked about, that they haven't even explored, and they haven't even asked the question. They haven't said internally. They haven't asked all the people working in maybe the marketing team or the IT team or whatever it might be. They haven't asked the question. They've said, hey, if we were to set up an e-commerce practice within our business and a capability within our business, would you want to be a part of that? Would you want to be part of that journey? And oftentimes what I find is when they ask that question, there's somebody that maybe is a little bit bored in the way things have always been done. They see the writing on the wall. And they're super hungry to learn. They're super passionate about the business and the way that it operates. And they know it inside and out, but they want to help establish this new channel within the business. And sometimes taking someone from that angle can be a little bit more successful because it's really difficult when you take somebody from the retail e-com that's so advanced, it's so mature and everything else, they come in and what I've seen sometimes happen is they come in and they look at everyone and they go, you guys are all digital Luddites. And they feel like they're almost, they're starting back from square one from a digital perspective, as opposed to coming in where something is semi-mature and then they're taking it to the next level. So I think it can work either way, but it really comes down to the desire of the individual person to make it successful. And do they want to put in the hard yards to make it successful? Because I'll be blunt about it. It is harder when you're starting from zero, it is harder to go from zero to one than it is to go from one to five. That's just the nature of almost everything to do with tech. So that's the experiences I've seen. But yeah, I think that a lot of these B2B businesses have overlooked people with deep desire to see the business modernize because they were afraid to put their hand up because they they were afraid, hey, the business isn't there yet. We have always had field sales reps. We're always going to have field sales reps. We don't do this digital thing. We operate in an old school legacy vertical. This is never going to happen, right? And so they've just never said anything. They've kept their mouth shut because they don't want to rock the boat and they want to keep their job. But when you open up the opportunity to them, it can be a whole different discussion. Yeah, yeah. And I think we had a the very first conference, B2B e-commerce conference, summit in Australia last year. And it was really awesome to get that off the ground. But we had Justin King, who's a recognized B2B e-commerce thought leader, come down and do the opening keynote for the event. And his talk track was really focused on seeding the message that your number one champion of your B2B e-commerce project and sales channel needs to be your head of sales. And because it ultimately is a sales strategy and it, it probably surprised quite a few people in the room a little bit because a lot of them had been a lot of them had been embarking on these digital transformations or maybe we're looking at it i met quite a few that sort of spoke to afterwards that said you know what we haven't even spoken to sales about about this project getting that buy-in at a minimum from that level 
is pretty critical, I think, as well, because ultimately they're usually the loudest voices and having them really believe in what this is and having them champion the message is going to set you up for success. That's sometimes, not just sometimes, I would actually say the, in the lion's share of situations where I'm called in to consult to these B2B businesses, it is a discussion that, that the CEO or maybe the CIO, the CTO is asking me to have with the sales team, with the board. We're having these high-level conversations because oftentimes the resistance starts in the sales team to digital transformation because to them... They oftentimes, not always, but they will often see it as a threat. They see it as a threat to their livelihood. They see it as a threat to their position. They see it as, oh, look, they're trying to replace us with digital sales channels and get rid of all the salespeople and get rid of all the commissions, et cetera, et cetera. And what I try to help them understand is that, at least for me as a consultant, maybe the CEO has some deep, dark secret that he's not letting any of us know that his his game is to ultimately replace you all with digital technology. But I've never experienced that. and I've never seen that. And I certainly don't advocate for that. I actually advocate very strongly for digital enablement of sales teams. That's what I'm an advocate for is that, hey, let's take the admin side of your work off your plate so that you can actually do the things that you're good at, which is building relationships, finding new customers, bringing in new products, helping to set them up with trading terms that work for them, helping to engage with them, talk to them about new product drops, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Your salespeople, they're really good at building relationships. That's what they're there for. And so why would you want to spend 20 to 60% of your time doing admin crap, entering orders into an ERP or sending out spreadsheets via email or heaven forbid, receiving faxes from customers and all the rest? Why would you want to do that when that is such a waste of your valuable time that you're getting paid for And if you've got named accounts anyway, why would it matter which channel that customer chooses to transact with you through? If if they're a named account, then if the transaction goes through the website, you're still going to get credit for that sale. Just because you didn't manually key it into the ERP, does it really matter that it originated through an e-commerce front end? So these are the types of conversations I'm having pretty routinely. And if I can get a good solid 10 to 20 minutes with a sales team, without the leadership in the room and I can just speak directly with them and I can have them pepper me with their concerns, their questions, all the things that are on their mind. And they can fear, they can speak openly without fear of retribution from leadership and they can really be really honest with me. Then I can allay 95% of those concerns in under a half an hour. But I have to be given the opportunity to do that. And they have to open the kimono enough and trust me enough to say, look, I'm not here to replace you guys. That's not what I'm here to do. I'm here to enable and empower you. And we now have digital tooling that is going to make your life so much better. And you're going to actually enjoy your job so much more. We're going to take away so much pain for you. Plus, nowadays, whereas B2B e-commerce, even as of a few years ago, was probably looked at as purely a transactional channel, replenishment ordering. Now it's a digital acquisition channel. And so now we can actually acquire customers through these e-commerce platforms. And then now we're going to be funneling you fresh leads to to go and have conversations with these customers that originate online and that you can deepen that relationship with them. Say, hey, look, we saw you ordered on our website. Thank you very much. Hey, look, let's get you set up with trading terms. Let's get you set up with your custom catalog, your custom pricing, blah, blah, blah. You can have those conversations, but they originated through the digital channel. And these are the types of conversations, I think, that start to lower the fear factor level and the resistance level. Because like you said, if you don't get the sales team on the bus right from day one, they can sabotage a project and you will never get it off the ground. Yeah. And I think people can overcomplicate it as well in their heads. They just feel like it's super complex and it's all 
technical stuff I don't understand. But really, no one's asking you to be a technical expert. You really just need to think about it more strategically around how these tools are an enabler for you and for your customers to use. No one's going to expect you to be able to build this platform or get involved in the design of that platform at a technical level where it's here to help you do your job. But I think, and still, there's still, unfortunately, there's still a lot of businesses out there that are trying to separate the online sales with and their offline sales with the sales team. And it just creates so many problems for organizations. But hopefully that's going to change with more and more sort of stories that come out in the coming years. Because I still haven't really seen a case study yet where someone said we implemented this platform and we sacked the whole sales team or 80% of the sales team. It's just not. It doesn't happen. It just doesn't, doesn't happen. happen. It just doesn't happen. So it's, it's even just not even worth people writing these articles. Is it the death of the salesman? It should just be, no, it's not. Yeah. And it never has been and it never will be. And, no. and what's funny is that I had Dean McElwee from Stanley Black & Decker on the podcast recently. And what he said is that for them, for an, a global organization like Black & Decker, what he said was, look, when we go into a new region, for example, if we go into India, so they, they've recently gone hard into the Indian space. And he said, even if we had 200 sales reps on the ground, there's like 10,000 wholesalers and distributors. And then, of course, they're supplying retailers in the region. He goes, even if I had 200 salespeople on the ground, we could never, ever get in front of, physically get in front of every single wholesaler and distributor in the country. We, we couldn't do it. It's impossible. But what we can do is we can reach out to all of them through email, digital channels, et cetera, get them onboarded into our wholesale platform and allow them to buy even those retail stores that are buying two, three, four, five units at a time, not a hundred units at a time, you know, like your Lowe's or your Bunnings. They're not that big, but they're, they're the corner shop and they're the tool supplier for that neighborhood, for example. And he said, we just could never get in front of these people. He goes, but we can reach out to them digitally and we can onboard them digitally. And then they can order directly through us because oftentimes they'll reach out to us. And if we don't have a digital channel in region, we don't have an easy way to transact with them. We just don't even, we just, we can't get information. We can't get text sheets. We can't get videos. We can't get content. We can't get PDFs. We have no way of disseminating all this amazing information about our products and sales enablement for them, point of sale materials that they can print off, blah, blah. He said, we don't, we just couldn't do that. We could not physically do that, uh, especially in a new region that is that large and regionally diverse. We just simply could not do it. And so I think that's another thing that a lot of these B2B businesses, B2B businesses they operate regionally, they have global ambitions, but the only way that they could even consider executing on those global ambitions is digitally. They could not do it physically. No. Yeah, I think, you know, people now as well, they're just, they're so busy. There's so much noise as well. So there's just a huge opportunity as well to use these platforms and tools to just create, just remove that friction and give people what they want. These buyers that are coming through, they just don't, they don't want to wait around for an answer. They want to be able to execute on something or start a process without you. And the more that you, the more that you don't give people those options, the harder you are to be going to be do business fry. And that's when you start to see, you'll start to see that churn over time or someone else comes in and is do it just makes it that little bit easier for them. Then, you know, you're going to lose them. Are you a small or medium sized wholesaler that currently processes your transactions manually? Or maybe you're a D2C merchant that is looking to expand and add a B2B e-commerce channel but don't know how. 
Well, if you're ready to take the next steps on your B2B merchant journey, check out Mikata.cloud today to find out more about the e-commerce platform built from the ground up for small and medium B2B merchants. That's Mikata.cloud, M-I-K-A-T-A.cloud. And like you say, you have to actually be where your customers are. And we've had that mantra in retail e-commerce for you. It's, you know, don't fight the, there's no such thing in theory as channel conflict because you just need to be in every channel that your customers are at. And I think B2B businesses are finally starting to realize that too. And we're starting to see the emergence and rapid growth of B2B marketplaces as well. So we're seeing the demand absolutely from a younger B2B buying demographic now, parents, grandparents, parents, kids. Now it's the kids that are running the B2B business as the buyer. And they just expect to be able to transact across digital channels 24 hours a day, seven days a week, where, you know, from the comfort of their couch and their iPad. But we're also seeing that the, they've been trained up to buy on the likes of Amazon and eBay and other marketplaces. And we're seeing the explosion of dedicated B2B marketplaces, or in the case of Amazon, really a blended marketplace because Amazon business, really the listings are interspersed with the traditional retail experience, but being able to buy at scale and in volume. And so have you seen that too, that whilst we're talking primarily about an owned e-commerce experience, we're seeing an explosion in digital channels dedicated to B2B other than that too. So we're seeing portals, we're seeing obviously the explosion of EDI, which has always been in B2B forever, but definitely the proliferation of EDI and almost the small buyers graduate if they get bigger and they turn into bigger buyers, then oftentimes they'll want to graduate from e-com to EDI and be mm. fully automated out of their ERP. But then sometimes they'll want to buy off of a global marketplace. And I think that if we were to look at one of the first marketplaces that really popularized this was Alibaba, right? And if you wanted to, Alibaba was really the first B2B marketplace that made it super, super easy to source from China digitally. But that same business model is now being replicated all around the world, not just China. Yeah, yeah. It's really exploded. Talking to Mark Brohan at the Digital 360, Digital Commerce 360, those guys tracking a lot of marketplaces. And I think pre-COVID, they were I think there was about 80 marketplaces I were tracking, and now it's something like 400 B2B marketplaces that, that, that have exploded in the US. And we're lucky enough to have the Miracle guys involved in the B2B Commerce Association and talk to them a lot and their leading B2B marketplace platform. And really interesting to see through their customer base and the, the clients that they have around the different business models that are being deployed in the B2B marketplace category. And there's a lot of different types of marketplaces that are emerging now as well. And it's an interesting play, I think, for a lot of companies. If you've got the, obviously, need the budget and you need the headcount to be able to make it work, I think a few people have been caught out, brands have been caught out with just the amount of heads that you need to really execute a marketplace at scale. It's a lot more, there's a lot of challenges in doing that, but it comes back to probably having the fundamentals right from day one to be able to scale a B2B marketplace. But I think the concept of a community and owning the category is an interesting play because maybe as a distributor, you want to be famous for, you want to be able to have that breadth of range and then you can take your knowledge and your relationship building and your sales process and be able to really own that, own the category. It's, yeah, it's really interesting place and we're, yeah, we're watching it pretty closely and putting a lot of time and effort into keeping, I guess, the audience up to date with what's happening in that B2B marketplace category. And yeah, well, I think it's going to continue to grow in the coming years. So it'll be interesting. Yeah. And I think one of the other things that I'm trying to help 
B2B brands understand is that this is a journey. It's not a destination. And this is not a one and done effort, right? And in retail e-commerce, we've gone through that same evolution where a lot of brands thought, oh, we'll set up an e-commerce website and that'll last us for 10 years and that'll be all we need to do. And it'll just look after itself and tick away in the background, right? It's the field of dreams model. Build it and they will come, right? And then they got a dose of reality over time and now there's massive competition in every single niche and you've got to be really progressive and differentiated and all the rest that goes along with that. And I'm trying to help B2B brands understand, look, you're not going to be Granger tomorrow. That's not how this works. You, you've got to walk before you, you've got to crawl before you can walk, before you can run, right? And set expectations realistically within the business of how, what percentage of transactions or percentage of GMV is going to be done digitally within, say, the first 24 months. If you can get to a place where 25% or a quarter of your transactions are done digitally within the first two years, you're doing pretty damn well. That's, yeah. that's one quarter of your transactions. And sometimes leaders in a business will say, we want 50% of our transactions to be done digitally within the first 12 months of launch. And I'm going, that's great as a target. And maybe we strive for that. Maybe that's a stretch number or whatever the case may be. But you got to ask the question, how did you arrive at that number? Why did you arrive at that number? And do you really want to have that as a top-down KPI when really all we're trying to do is to get good ROI on this investment as soon as possible and really what we're doing is we're not only taking our team on the journey, but we're taking our customers on the journey too. And so from an adoption perspective, I kind of have my own thoughts on how to encourage digital adoption. But what have you seen in the market that brands are doing well or maybe not so well right from the beginning of considering establishing digital channels? How are you seeing them set themselves up for success from day one to encourage high levels of customer adoption of their new digital channels? Yeah, I think it's a great topic, customer adoption. And that's actually one area on the B2B e-commerce association website where I really want to create a really great pool of resources for people to be able to tap into the whole concept of customer adoption. Because I think that's one of the big challenges that we're seeing regularly in talking to people is that, especially over the last couple of years, where people have gone invested in a lot of new technology, maybe re-platformed with pretty high expectations on and on on the level of adoption they're going to get as a percentage of sales and how quickly they were going to deliver that. But you're seeing that conversation emerge a little, a fair bit more now around customer adoption strategies. But I think it, it really does get back to probably what you're describing around having setting the expectations right and making sure people understand the timeframes that are required in order to deliver this and how long it does take. Unfortunately, for people that have left things a little bit later than they probably would have liked, that first two years is really about setting those foundations right because you have to do, you have to, you can't rush that. Everyone wants to and everyone still will, but we need to make sure that those things are, are in place to allow you to then be able to scale effectively and not run into major challenges, but really getting people now to have their sales team be the enabler and the champion for the channel is obviously a great start. But I think now what we're seeing emerging as well from a lot of the agencies and systems integrators that are in the space and the consultants now, it's not just about helping you connect your backend systems to the commerce platform. It's how can you actually now enable this platform and the technologies and the people to be able to actually start getting getting that benefit and getting people to actually use it and it's and a lot of brands as well don't even have as part of this whole 
business case and the planning, they don't even have a customer adoption plan of what's that, how they're going to actually roll that out, right? They'll do that as an afterthought later, which can put you in a pretty bad position because if you say you launch the platform, you teed out some of the problems, right? And then you start to look at what the customer adoption plan is going to be. You could be 18 months in or 12 mm -hmm. months in and then all of a sudden you're not even having that conversation yet or have any strategies in place to actually get people to to be adopting the platform and then people are asking questions where's the roi or why why aren't we at 25 percent or it's, it's fluctuating we're not seeing that sort of month on month growth so yeah so we're putting together a lot of at the moment actually collating a lot of resources around this topic so look forward to promoting that on a few social channels on email soon coming up so encouraging more and more people to come forward with any sort of content and stuff they have around customer adoption because i think it's a really critical topic and i think it'll be another one of those niche areas as well jason like in the future where you might be a customer adoption specialist in the b2b commerce category so i think there's going to be more and more roles for people that specialize in those types of services yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that's a, that's an appropriate role, even if it's only a short-term role, i.e. someone's allocated to that. That's their job for the duration of the project and say, first six months post-live, whatever, it's their job to put together a customer adoption plan right from day dot, even before pen's been put to paper around requirements gathering or anything, starting to talk to, and this goes back to that conversation with the sales team. I think that's where it starts. But I also think you start bringing customers on the journey before you put pen to paper. I think you you start to canvas, you start to ask the question, you start to ask them, is this something you'd be interested in? And if you are, what kinds of functionality would you expect out of a digital experience? What kind of pain points and friction are you experiencing with us today that you'd like to, if you could snap your fingers and have it disappear tomorrow, what could we make go away for you? What could we bring to the table that would really enhance your experience and the enjoyment? that you get out of engaging with us, you start to put together these questions and it could be emailed, it can be the sales reps talking to the buyers about this sort of thing. I just think the sooner you can have these discussions with customers and that you can bring them on the journey from even before you start to bring in agencies and consultants and all the rest, vendors, whatever, I think the sooner you can start having those conversations, the less risk of low adoption you'll have and the less resistance you'll have from internal teams to adoption as well, or the less risk that sales teams will think, oh, customers will never use this stuff. Oh, customers never use this stuff. We're going to go and spend a couple hundred yeah. thousand dollars building up this solution. Nobody's going to use it. Let's find out. Let's canvas. Let's ask the questions. And sometimes, sometimes customers don't know what they don't know. And yes, yeah, sometimes you'll get, ah, oh, no, probably wouldn't use it. So you have to take it with a little bit of a grain of salt. But if you get a little more nuanced in the way that you ask the question, as opposed to would you like us to offer e-commerce or not? I think that you have to get a lot more subtle and you got to get a lot more nuanced about the way that you ask these questions to tease out what their actual actions would be or more likely to be if you were to establish these channels. And if we want you to adopt it at a higher rate, what would we have to do? What would we have to build? What kind of functionality would we have to deliver for this to be an outstanding, world-beating customer experience for you? And when you start having those discussions and you bring the customers on the journey so that they feel like they're actually shaping what that experience ultimately looks like, I think that automatically sets you up for a better level of success. And I also recommend bringing them along on the UAT journey, exposing them to things like initial prototypes, initial design sets, just showing them. Maybe you, and I've talked about this before, maybe you select one cohort. So let's say you, I don't know, let's say you've got 100 B2B customers that, that are buying off of you. 
Maybe you take five B2B customers that you think would be super early adopters of this technology and the five that you're, five customers that your sales team says, nope, they will never adopt digital. They will never adopt e-commerce. Maybe those become your two cohorts, the ones you think are going to adopt and the ones you think absolutely will not. And then those become kind of your control group, right? You bring them on and you bring them on the discussion right from the beginning. You show them the prototypes. You take them through UAT. Yeah. You get them doing testing alongside you so that they can poke holes and what you've built as early as possible and identify challenges and friction. So I just think that there's no perfect adoption plan that will work for everybody. And it is a little bit dependent on organizational size and maturity. But I just think the sooner you can bring the sales team and the customer on the journey, the higher the chance of adoption you'll have by both parties. Yeah, I had an interesting discussion with someone the other day around, because one of the common things that I've seen along the journey is that people will often start with, could be a little bit scared and they'll start with, let's start with our really small customers and see if we can get them ordering online. Yeah. Yep. But different perspective to look at it is really, we're looking at this as a strategic imperative. We really should be designing this for our biggest and best customers. That should be the natural starting point, potentially, is saying, let's talk to them about what they want. Because ultimately, they're the ones that we want to be de delighted and please with this buying experience and then start from there. But I know there's a lot of people looking at that, that, that scenario you described earlier, that long tail, they're hard to service, but you know, it, and it really comes back to what you said before, different businesses have different requirements and the cust the makeups of those customers can vary significantly as well. It can be quite not straightforward cookie cutter model to getting that adoption right. But it's just an interesting sort of way to, to think of things though, just to be careful of not always assuming that just because they're the, your biggest customers and you just don't change anything. It's, it's important to consider all aspects. Yeah. And sometimes those digital, those, those biggest customers, they might go, actually, whilst we order through a field sales rep today, actually what we'd like to have is EDI. We're big enough that we actually want to generate, we want to generate our orders directly out of our ERP and we want it to integrate directly with your ERP. And so sometimes you'll get You'll just get insights, I think. If you're building out digital channels anyway, and you're trying to engineer in as much of a future-proof way as possible, you might as well set the foundation, whether it's because you need a PIM system, whether it's you need e-commerce, whether you need a custom integration middleware layer because you've got to tie all this stuff together somehow. And so you want to think about all the potential digital channels as early as possible that you think you might adopt in the future so that you minimize the amount of double handling that you're going to need to do during engineering and implementation. I think scope creep is a massive risk with any digital project, but I think particularly in B2B, I think because a lot of these businesses, they don't know what they don't know, I think you have to spend more time in general. I think if I was just to compare my experiences with doing deep dive discoveries with retail, B2B, B2C businesses, and B2B businesses, I would say that my B2B discoveries tend to be about 50% longer and deeper because they're much more complex businesses, or they tend to be much more complex businesses. And there's so many more processes that are analog today or semi-digital, and we now need to translate them into digital equivalents. And there's a lot more deep dive that we have to get into. And maybe there's there's usually a little bit more education that goes along with the discovery as opposed to just simply documenting requirements with a lot of digital retailers that are digitally savvy. They know their requirements pretty damn well and they don't need as much handholding. But I find with B2B, they need you to spell it out a little bit more in a little bit more detail to them and explain the consequences of, oh, okay, if we go this route, it's going to it's going to result with this. If we go this route, it's going to result with this. So we need to make these decisions intentionally and knowing 
what the consequences of those decisions are. If we make a compromise now, what does that potentially mean for the future? And so I think to make sure that we're all aligned internally from a budgetary perspective, from a timeline perspective, from a complexity and human resourcing perspective, a lot of these B2B businesses, they're the first massive digital project they've ever done except for maybe ERP. And so there is a lot of education and handholding that goes along with those initial discussions. Are you, you see the same? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's interesting as well, you know, looking at the scoping of these projects is always quite difficult as well from an, an MVP perspective as to what you leave in and what you leave out. And mm. you've got different levels of digital maturity on the practitioner side of the people involved in that project. And may, maybe you've got a systems integration company that doesn't have much experience in your industry category. And they're trying to learn as well about your business processes and for them to understand what the consequences are if for these things not to be in place or to be done a certain way. So there's so much, yeah, there's so much to unpack in these projects, which is quite hard for all parties involved. And I think, yeah, it's difficult. It's probably really hard to make sure that and there's an interesting discussion on LinkedIn around MVP that I was reading the other day and someone wrote a really thoughtful comment around MVP saying that it's great to the concept of an MVP. When you launch something that doesn't actually deliver any value or minimal value, then yeah. you can lose a lot of momentum and belief in the project from all parties. Even mm -hmm. though you, one knew that it was going to be an MVP and we're going to start this way, you can just, it's just a really fine line to tread, I reckon, particularly in these in these organizations in B2B when it could be a fair bit of pressure on delivering something that can build momentum quickly, something to think about. But, you know, definitely see, seeing what you've described all the time and it's an ongoing, I think it's going to be an ongoing struggle. And I guess that makes it our industry quite unique, right? So many different industry verticals, so many different business models and people at various stages of their digital maturity so one thing that's emerging though is companies are realizing that the people that are going to be involved in these projects, they need to have a certain level of experience or foundational sort of knowledge and even training. So one organization I spoke to the other day, the CIO was actually implementing almost like a digital driver's license within the organization. So they had done a lot of studies internally and done some research on the projects that hadn't gone as well as they would have liked and tried to pick up some of the trends within those projects. And one of them was that there were too many people that hadn't been involved in, in enough digital work or hadn't had that baseline digital foundation that they believe they should have. So they're starting now to implement a, some criteria, a certain level of training that needs to be met in order to be able to participate in those projects and those types of discussions. Yeah, so it's be interesting to see how all those types of things and emerge within B2B organizations in the future as well. I think you raise a good point, which is that if we're talking a manufacturer or a wholesaler or a distributor, those three requirement sets can look quite different. And there, there's an underlying theme that they're selling to businesses. And so that's the common thread, but their needs from a back office system scenario, systems integration could be quite different. We can have all sorts of different things. And then now what I'm seeing, another trend that I'm seeing that further complicates that is that a lot of these B2B businesses that I'm talking to, they want to jump straight to having a D2C channel, a direct-to-consumer e-commerce channel. And they say, we want to recapture some margin. We want to have direct conversations with the end customer. We want to have all these great things. And we want to set up this D2C channel. I'm going, but you're not even doing B2B e-commerce yet which is a known business model for you. They're known customers with a known 
business process associated with selling yeah. to those customers and you're used to selling oh, cartons, pallets, and containers already. So why wouldn't we start there and dip your toes into the water in B2B e-commerce before we go down this rabbit hole of D2C e-commerce, which is a whole nother beast altogether. It's a completely different business model. You're going to need completely different customer service processes and returns processes and everything else. You're going to need different carriers. You're going to need everything's different. And so I'm encouraging them again. This goes back to the crawl, run, walk scenario. I'm encouraging a lot of these B2B businesses to say, hey, look, we're looking at implementing D2C as our very first e-commerce channel. I'm saying I can help you with that. But my recommendation is do B2B e-commerce first in a business model that you're very familiar with, build up some skills, build up the muscle, do the exercises, understand what's involved, build up some capability. Then we can look at establishing a D2C channel, which, has, which is a whole different kettle of fish. I couldn't agree more. Like everyone went the wrong way. Most businesses, there's a few sort of rare success stories, but everyone, the amount of businesses in my old world where I've said the actual safest and smartest place to start is in the B2B channel. The D2C feels like the opportunity. The, yeah. And that world has gotten so much more complex from an online marketing perspective in order to convert and more expensive. So yeah, there's just, and there's still that trend, but I, it is starting to shift the other way. You know? I think there's a lot of, you know, I remember my time working at Adobe and I know there's a lot of those companies and people I speak to at Salesforce and other brands where a lot of the companies started out with D2C and now they're realizing, no, actually the big play is we need to digitize the B2B operations, right? That's the opportunity. But yes, the D2C thing is interesting emerging with the first party data. People want to be able to have better conversations, be able to track what their customers are doing, wanting, but ultimately the most immediate business value in this and they need to, you need to, they need to be really strong at what your core business is from a digital perspective. That, that makes the most sense, right? And then expand in, into that opportunity later. But it's getting harder and harder, I think, the D2C space. There's just like to be the online marketing component, the cost of, cost to, cost of acquisition is, is a challenge. It's totally unsustainable for lots of D2C brands, especially yeah. the ones that were born during COVID when the TAM exploded for D2C. And now it's gone right back to what it was or not much more than what it was pre-COVID. And so, wow, it's a competitive space D2C. And I'm seeing the migration the other way where brands started out pure D2C. They never had a B2B channel. Yeah. And now they're going actually from a distribution perspective, we cannot get in front of every single customer or potential customer. We just could we could never do it. And so therefore we need retail partners and wholesale partners yeah. that can work with us to get in front of those customers that we can never access. And so they're, established, they're looking at establishing a B2B channel when they never had B2B operations at all. Yes. Yeah. And there's also a lot of big retailers. Yeah. They're, yeah. They're setting up, starting to cut into that distributors market as well, you know, setting up B2B channels that's starting to emerge. It's a bit of a concern for some distributors, the certain industry categories, yeah, where the retailer is becoming that starting to hit into those channels that potentially was an untapped opportunity for some of these distributors who maybe weren't focusing on some of these markets now that retailers are trying to pounce on it. And especially if they're a large scale retailer and they've got a very large store estate, they're doing volumes that are higher than what the distributors are doing in some cases, or they're the number one customer of the local distributor. And so it makes sense yes. for them to be the wholesale channel and establish the wholesale channel because they've got the routes to market and they've got the customers that in some cases are already buying in volume from them anyway. So why not establish a B2B trade relationship with them? Look, man, it has been such a pleasure chatting with you. I think we've covered some really good ground today. And I love the fact that some of the things you're seeing and hearing 
from all of the industry partnerships that you have, echoing some of the things I'm seeing and experiencing. I'm only one tiny sliver, one tiny lens onto this market, but it's good to get that cross-functional validation that we have together. We're coming to the end of our time together, but I'd love to turn the microphone over to you. This is the time when I get to get quizzed and I get to let you ask me one question, any question you like, can be personal, can be professional. So what is your question today for me, Mr. Brett Sinclair? Okay. My question for you is, Jason, you are posting a lot of content online, a lot of professional content, and you're also giving us insight into your personal journeys traveling across the world. People very envious of your position. Is managing a business and tra traveling like you are in different countries and regions, is it all it's cracked up to be or is it harder than it looks? I think it's both, but I think it's better. It's better than I could have anticipated in most respects. I think I always had the vision and I was always very clear with my wife as well before we even left New Zealand that we wouldn't be traveling every day. I think that's really hard. I think if you're on the road and you're only staying in each place one day, two days, three days a week, I think that's really tough. We've got a car here and so we'd be packing up every day if we were doing that. But what we had the goal of staying in each major place that we stayed for at least a month. And that allows you to at least settle in long enough to buy some stuff and put it in the fridge. And that allows you to set up your desk and it allows you to make sure that you're all connected to internet and all the things are working the way you need them to work. And so I think we've tried to strike that balance between doing lots of travel, lots of sightseeing, doing lots of activities. We brought our dog with us from New Zealand. So we try to do as many dog-friendly activities as we can as well. And it's almost like a kid. You don't want them moving around too much. You want them to feel a little bit settled as well. And yeah. so for us, we... For us, the perfect balance has been about a month in each place. And I think if we moved any more frequently than that, it would be very difficult, but it's actually been, it's worked out really well. And especially for my clients in ANZ, for example, their Monday is my Sunday. And, but then again, my Friday is their Saturday. So it all works out. And yep. fortunately, my late evenings, because I'm a night owl, I'm not an early riser. I'm not an early bird. I'm a night owl. And fortunately, because NZ in Australia are five, six, seven, eight hours behind me, I can work in my evening times with my clients in ANZ and it's their afternoon and or it's their morning. And so it works out. Yeah. It works out really well. I can do stuff during the day and then come the evening, I can jump online and I can be on conference calls and all the rest. COVID is the thing that made this possible. We have always, I think in our industry, we've almost always been able to work 100% remote. I had clients and people that I worked with at that time that they expected to meet you at least once in person, eyeball you, shake your hand, do the deal. And then if you worked remote from then on, it was all good. But nowadays, because of COVID and everybody learned to live on Zoom, I, now my clients from all over the world have no expectation that, yeah, sure, if I happen to be in their country or their region, I'll make an effort to reach out to them and meet up. But there is no expectation that I will ever see them in person to, to work with them and do business with them. And that is the lingering benefit of COVID from my perspective is that it's actually made what we do so much easier because working with clients and partners and vendors, et cetera, now the expectation is you'll be able to do everything with them online. So it's worked out really well. Okay. Sounds like then I could follow your model and even with two kids under two, it will still work, right? Sure. Not having kids myself, I don't want to speak on behalf of you and your kids, but maybe once they're like, I would say if they were five and above, then I could see how that could be really cool because you do get family passes. Once you've got four people in a family, right. so it's two adults and two kids is the typical family pass. So of course, two adults and a dog, we don't get the family pass, but you would now that you've got two kids. So I think 
once the kids are old enough to actually be able to go and do activities, then man, go for it. Yeah, something to think about. But maybe when they're 18, we can start traveling again. <laughs> Reality. Yeah, I love it. Now, what's cool. the best way for people to get a hold of you? Now, I know that you're on LinkedIn. You're on the LinkedIn heaps. Now, obviously, B2B e-commerce association, B2Bea.org, I think is your URL, is your web address. Would you prefer that people go and if they're in the B2B space, hook up with you through the website or go to LinkedIn, hook up with you, Brett Sinclair there? How would you prefer people get a hold of you? Yeah, definitely add me on LinkedIn. Yeah, pretty active and follow the B2B e-commerce association on LinkedIn and go to our website. To sign up as a member, completely free. We're really investing really hard now to create, I guess, more and more resources um, within the association that you can use, putting a lot of time and effort to collate a lot of the industry content that is going out there. So keeping you up to date with what's happening. And we're looking to really expand on our sort of in-person networking experiences as well over the next 12 to 18 months. So if you sign up, you'll be tuned into that. And I think it's just a really great opportunity to participate in the conversation as well. There's a lot of chatter that we're having online about the B2B commerce space and encourage you to definitely get involved in that as we really start to, to build our cohort in the industry. And I'm very keen to talk to anyone in the category. I'm happy to help make connections, provide advice and send people in, in the right direction at any, any point I can. So feel free to contact me. Yeah, I can definitely vouch for that. You've hooked us up with people. You've connected us with people. You've said, hey, you need to talk to them. They need to talk to you. You need to make this happen. I think you guys could work together. You've been an amazing supporter of the entire B2B e-commerce space. So congratulations on that. I've seen you I've seen you connect people that would never have connected any other way. So congratulations on that. And you're going to be at Envision, the Envision conference this year. Is that right? Is that the, the major B2B conference in North America that you'll be going to this year if people want to catch up with you in person? Yes, exactly. So yeah, I will be there next week. So on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday next week, I'll be in Chicago. So anyone that's attending the event, love to connect and catch up with you there. So yeah, look forward to catching up with the US cohort. Love it. Brett, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And look, you're doing great things for the industry. Really appreciate all your efforts. I know how hard trying to herd cats is always a difficult thing. You're a great focal point for the industry and you're doing really good things and a rising tide floats all boats. So thank you for all of your efforts and I can't wait to have another chat with you again soon. If you're into B2B commerce and you would like to be a guest on B2B Commerce Corner, simply go to ecommerceedge.net, click on more info, then click on be a guest and fill out your details and we will get back to you straight away.